The following podcast is a proud member of the Blue Collar Roots Network. Find all the shows by visiting bluecollarroots.com. Here's your fearless leader. He's more than just the man. He's the manometer. Bill Spohn. Welcome back to another edition of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Today we'll be speaking with Griffin Hagel. He'll be speaking to us from the town of Ukiakvik. That's my attempt to pronounce the village in which he names. It used to be called Barrow, Alaska, if you're interested. And we'll hear a little bit more about that. They're in the middle of polar night when we did this interview, and he's coming to us via a satellite connection. Griffin helps us understand a little bit more about what goes on in terms of rural or really frontier building science and weatherization. Griffin will cover a number of different aspects about working in the way up north where he works, including health studies and the cost to fly in materials to do weatherization work up in the polar region. As you may know, the goal of building HVAC Science Podcast is to help create better, more knowledgeable HVAC and building performance technicians. And we think some of that will come through getting exposed to other aspects of the career and the business and the market of building science and HVAC. This episode is part of the Blue Collar Roots Network. You'll find other trade-oriented podcasts in the Blue Collar Roots Network by going to www.bluecollarroots.com. If you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, we encourage you to do so. You can do that by typing Building HVAC Science into the search bar of one of these services. For Apple, that'd be the podcast app, or for Android, Google Play Music, or Stitcher. You can also listen to the podcast in your browser at bluecollarroots.com forward slash building dash HVAC science. And now on to our conversation with Griffin Hagel. Welcome back to another edition of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. We're happy today to have Griffin Hagel with us to talk about some of the changes and things that he's seen happening in the building performance world, get to a little bit more about Griffin and his background, and see what's happening up there in Barrow, Alaska. So Griffin, welcome today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. I'm really excited to be here. It's fantastic. So why don't we just kind of dig right into it. Where are you located right now? What's going on? I'm located in the town formerly known as Barrow, Alaska. It was uh, changed in 2016 to Utkiavik, which is a native term for a place to gather wild roots. So that was a change that took some uh, pronunciation adjustment and I'm still working to get used to it a year later. How is that spelled and how is that pronounced? (laughs) I'll do my best for you, but don't consider me an authority. I say Utkiavik, and that is U-T-Q-I-A-G with a dot above it. V-I-K. Utkiavik is the northernmost city in the United States and the northernmost in Alaska, obviously. We're up here on the North Slope, which is a county-level government. Alaska doesn't have counties but boroughs, so the North Slope borough covers about 95,000 square miles and I think is slightly larger than Utah. So we are administering a weatherization program that serves eight villages across that region. So let's keep with the numbers there. What's the population of people served in that borough? Slightly under, uh, you know, we have a large itinerant population because this is where the Alaska oil fields are located, east of us in Prudhoe Bay. So a couple thousand people come and go constantly, but it's under 10,000 for sure that are permanent residents and probably closer to eight. Utgavik has about 4,500 permanent residents, and then the satellite villages around this region can vary between 
as little as a couple hundred, maybe 300, up to 800 and something people out in uh, Point Hope on the western side of the borough. Got it. Are they pretty far flung in terms of population density, people serve there? Probably as far flung as you will find in this country. Yeah. So the borough itself is about 650 miles east to west. So Point Hope is the western extremity that reaches into the Chukchi Sea and re- towards Russia. And then on the east, we're bounded by Canada and we have the village of Koktovik and the Prudhoe Bay oil field complex over there. So the closest villages to Utgavik, we've got Atkasuk, which is 60 miles inland from here, and then the village of Wainwright on the coast, about 90 miles from here. But And none of those are connected by roads, I should point out. So everything comes in here by aircraft or barge and really makes for some interesting logistics. So sticking with one more statistic, which you shared with me, one more number, what's the typical annual heating degree days? North of 20,000. So how does that compare? Like, have you ever studied, like, what is the next most challenging area in the world or even the United States in terms of heating degree days? Oh, gosh. We've got multiple climate zones in Alaska. I think uh, some of the areas in Southeast may go down as low as eight or 9,000 heating degree days. I know Anchorage is just around 10,500. So almost half of what we have up here. I'm sure. Minnesota and North Dakota are up there and kind of places that can relate to the challenges we see here in that kind of climate. We're right there in that Arctic zone nine, I think it is. So how did you get there? What's sort of your story? What's your journey? What got you? And you are involved with the weatherization program, am I correct? What's your role with that? Correct. I'm the administrator for the Bros weatherization program currently. And it's just me and basically five guys. We have one crew. So I'm the project manager and all that. And I've got a superintendent and four guys that work beneath him. I came up here in August 2015 because my wife, she spent several years growing up here and has spent several years since back up here. Her family had lived and worked up here in the past, and she's a teacher. So she wanted to spend her first few years in teaching up here in kind of community that she knew and felt at home in and had some support. So I got sucked into that adventure, and we moved up from San Diego, <laughs> which has... Uh, Probably under a thousand heating degree days, if that appears. So I really had to. S- so <laughs> contrasting to San Diego there. Yeah, very contrasting. San Diego is pretty much the same climate as I detect year round. So go ahead, tell me more about your story. How'd you get involved with weatherization? Kind of by accident. I didn't even know they had a weatherization program operated by the borough here. I should say that our program is a little bit of an anomaly. Most regions in Alaska are served by a central uh, community action agency based out of Anchorage called Rural Cap or by their own regional housing authorities. And the borough as the kind of municipal government is different than the housing authorities. So they have operated the weatherization program for the past several years, going back to at least 2008. And they've done a lot of that. The other thing that sets us apart is we don't use DOE funds, and we've used state grant funds in the past, but some of your listeners may or may not be aware that just kind of the lowered price of oil has really hit Alaska hard. So we're not currently using much state grant funds, and we have local operating funds to run this program, unlike a lot of municipalities out here. And that's a result of taxation on the oil complex nearby on the North Slope oil fields. So the North Slope Borough is a relatively well-off municipal government for Alaska. And that kind of gives us the flexibility to do some things some other weatherization programs wouldn't do. So it's interesting times here. So what are some of the challenges that you found in terms of building science and um, weatherization programs that you encounter up there? 
really that building science as a concept, it's not that it doesn't exist up here. There's definitely people who are aware of and interested in it. But, you know, like anything, when you have a low population, everybody's a little bit of a generalist. So it's really rare to run into somebody who's really specialized in building science and is really passionate about that. And so that's part of what we're trying to do is to create more of a cluster of knowledge up here around that. But I would say the the relative lack of building science awareness has been one challenge in running this program and finding people to do the work as well. So a lot of the work that we end up doing is kind of done out of necessity and goes beyond a lot of weatherization typically is in other places in the U.S. So for one instance, one example of that is we do a lot of foundation leveling and we just call it leveling houses here. And when I say that to anybody in the lower 48, they say like, you mean taking a bulldozer to it? And what I mean is we're actually taking the foundations, which are sinking as the permafrost thaws. And as the temperature climbs, they're really sagging. So you can imagine kind of what that does to the integrity of the building enclosure here. We've got a lot of homes built in the 70s and 80s on uh, fairly shallow pilings. And as the active layer, the seasonally thawing layer of the permafrost gets deeper and deeper as the climate warms up here, we're seeing homes sink quite a bit. And so you'll see windows crack, you'll see drywall crack, you'll see a door stick. And my toilet seat stays up some days on its own and some days it falls over and I can't keep it up. (laughs) So it's just any given day, which way the ground is going. Wow. That's sort of your indicator there. So in terms of education, building science, do you do client education? Are you talking with the homeowners, the residents there? We do client education. I think that's probably the most important aspect of what we do because it's so costly to do anything up here. You really want to make sure that investment lasts. And the best way to do that is make sure the people in the home understand what you're doing for them and understand how to properly operate the systems we put in. In many instances, we might be installing an HRV where that didn't exist before. And that's a new system that even here, a lot of people still aren't as comfortable with because they have you know different styles of kind of traditional ventilation or aren't used to what it takes to maintain good indoor air quality. So really trying to educate people about maintaining the systems we put in their home, about air tightness and the relationship to combustion safety, about vapor drive through walls and condensation, and trying to put it in the most practical terms possible to help people grasp that building science understanding. It sounds like you wear a lot of different hats. Where did you get your background? Where did you get your education, your practical knowledge here that you're talking about? Well, Bill, just I needed to pay the bills back when I was about 22 years old. I had moved back home. I'd actually gone to a flight school in Oklahoma to become a commercial pilot, and that school ended up going bankrupt while I was out there. So I had a kind of mid- career change of plans. And I'm really glad I did because I've really enjoyed the people I've met in this industry. And it has really kind of turned my perspective on the world in a positive direction. So I worked for a community action agency in Medford, Oregon, which is um, Southern Oregon on the border with California. It's where I grew up. I was really fortunate to have a string of good bosses early on from my crew lead to the, the manager of the weatherization program I worked for. And a couple of weeks into that job, I just kind of had this moment where I was putting together duct systems and sealing them and things like that in mobile homes and seeing the difference that it made for the people who lived there. Really just, I'm like, why don't we do this everywhere? Why don't we do this kind of work for low income and non low income? Why aren't all houses built like that? And ever since then, I've been trying to answer that question. I've never got satisfactory answer to date, I should say, but I guess we're all trying to work toward that answer. 
you mentioned combustion safety. Do you want to circle back to there? Because I think you have some things to talk about relative to carbon monoxide. I do. One thing you'll hear on the morning radio announcements that go out here and probably the rest of the state is just PSAs about carbon monoxide. I think Alaska has some of the highest, if not the highest rate of carbon monoxide poisoning deaths per capita. And I know that went down a little bit. Those rates dipped in 2005 when the legislature passed a law requiring carbon monoxide detectors in all residences. And then you see the the trend line kind of goes back up afterwards, a few years after that first generation of devices, their batteries expired or people threw them out or they just reached the end of their service life. We install carbon monoxide detectors in every residence we do, obviously. And we do see readings come up a lot of the time. Some of the things are obvious. Backdrafting water heater, there's naturally drafting water heaters and furnaces and boilers up here in some houses that are tighter than average, even pre-weatherization. So there's a kind of an inherent risk there. There's also the fact that most people here will idle their vehicles in their driveway for 30 to 40 minutes or even a couple hours because it's when it really reaches 20 below, 30 below, that's what you have to do and may not realize that that exhaust might be coming right in through their Arctic entry into their doorway and into the house. So we've seen some readings that we think we can attribute to that. And then there's a village in Nuixit, which is on the eastern edge of the National Petroleum Reserve up here, about 150 miles east of here. We're kind of in the middle of mobilizing all of our weatherization equipment and personnel from Utgavik to Nuixit. I assessed about 10 homes back in May And four of them had really high readings of carbon monoxide in the boiler stacks. And these boilers were all formerly oil-burning boilers that were converted to natural gas when the village natural gas field was developed in 2006. And so our heating specialists thought that there was something potentially going on with those burner retrofit kits. And also the fact, and this is really the main thing, that there's in the communities of three or 400 people that are off the road system and so far out there, it's just there aren't many qualified maintenance technicians who, who can really work on that and keep those things tuned up as easily as might happen somewhere that's more connected. So we run into things like that. And this is a village that has a lot of concerns about air quality because they're near some industrial development nearby the oil and gas fields. And basically, we're working with the tribal government there. We just got notification that we have an EPA mini grant to put carbon monoxide detectors in each home in that village. So what we're hoping to do is rule out carbon monoxide poisoning, whether it's low level and chronic or more severe than that as a factor in some of the health impacts people are experiencing there. And then kind of understand also what houses may have problem boilers and so on. And as far as I know, it'll be the first project that Anybody up here has done where we covered a whole village and sampled the CO in homes kind of in one batch like that. So we're really excited to get that rolling here probably in January and see what kind of information that produces. Are there uh, some cultural differences that cause you to have a different approach to the way you train, educate, discuss, recommend? There's some big cultural differences. What I've noticed is it really helps to be able to frame things in terms of the cultural understanding that that people have and to realize that as much as I care about building science and energy efficiency and things like that, that's not necessarily the reality 
everybody else up here lives. So one of the really cool things about being up here, this is the Inupiat Eskimo culture is a whaling culture. Whaling is sort of the center of life up here for the community. There's a spring in the fall whale harvests, subsistence whale harvests that are very carefully regulated every year in many communities. And it's just amazing the way that activity pulls people together. It is really a team effort. It is something that forms a basis for sharing. The whole harvest is shared with the community. So if you can relate things to that and find the ways that what you're doing relates to that, I think people are much more willing to listen and one of our um, our weatherization apprentices we just hired just put it in. I asked him what he thinks is so special about weatherization work, and and he said, well, it's just like whaling. It's it's a really hard job, but it's something that's got to get done. It's really important. It provides relief for members of the community who are the most vulnerable. And he was kind of without prompting saw it in those terms. So that really helped me understand it. And people's understanding of housing is also a lot different up here because 100 years ago, less than that in some communities, people were still living in sod houses that were framed with giant whale rib bones. And these were probably the most energy efficient houses you can imagine because they were built for the climate with sourced with local materials. And you're talking about sod and marine mammal skeletons and stuff like that and heated with whale oil lamps and even had ventilation, your passive exhaust ventilation on the top. So people still are really used to passive ventilation and they'll often have a little box in the top of their house that's called a kingok, which is an Inupiaq term that means nose or nostril, basically. A lot of the older people really would rather have that than an HRV or bath fan. And so we try to meet them halfway while explaining the necessity of what we're doing. We'll repair their kingoks. We'll put a nice sliding door on it and make sure it seals well and really be respectful of the traditional understanding people have of the way you live in a house. That's absolutely fascinating. Greetings, listeners in podcast land. Did you know that Backrack's been a leader in the design and manufacturing of combustion analysis equipment since 1909? It's one of those facts that I knew because I used to work there for 10 years. It's quite a fine company. Now, during their fall promotion, you can save on the purchase of a new combustion analyzer with rebates worth up to $350. That offer includes a free two-year subscription to their exclusive B-Smart Sensor Exchange program with the purchase of a FireRate Intech or an Insight Plus. With the B-Smart Sensor Exchange program, pre-calibrated sensors are shipped directly to you. No more hassle or downtime while you wait for the return of your analyzer from the factory for calibration. You can download your rebate form today at www.mybacharach.com forward slash offers. That's M-Y-B-A-C-H-A-R-A-C-H dot com forward slash offers. Enter the promo code HVAC Science. That's H-V-A-C-S-C-I-E-N-C-E. That will let them know that you heard it here on the Building HVAC Science podcast. This is a time-limited offer only for purchases made up to December 31st, 2017. So please take advantage of this. Are the sod homes, are they still prevalent? Or are people slowly moving to, or has it been a rapid changeover in terms of the housing construction, that the materials of construction? Probably the last decade in which people lived in sod homes was 1970s. And that was that'd probably be in Point Hope, which is in uh, many ways the most traditional community up here. It's also one of the oldest in North America. I think it's been continuously inhabited for at least 2,500 years, and there's remains of several distinct civilizations there. 
But that change in housing really began, at least here in, in Barrow and Utgavik, was kind of towards the turn of the 19th to the 20th century there. A lot of kind of frame homes started coming in with missionaries and Yankee whalers and things like that. And what people quickly found was that it's really hard to keep those things comfortable. And that was a rapid change. And since then, it's even as recently as the 80s and 90s, there's been a lot of home designs imported from elsewhere, you know, that might have worked in California or Texas or something like that, that were set up here. So we see a lot of two by four walls, R19 insulation in attics, and you just scratch your head and you're like, wow, not remotely appropriate designer construction. But the other side of that coin is that this is a frontier in a lot of ways. You know, Alaska is the last frontier, as people like to say. And I have sympathy for people who are in a hurry to get four walls and a roof over their heads. So there's kind of that rush to build first and then civilize. What would be the typical and then the ideal type of construction and type of ventilation and heating systems? So can you talk about the typical you have and are they moving towards a more ideal designs or techniques? Yeah. And that's a really cool thing up here is there are several organizations and people working on that problem. The typical stuff The older homes is built in the 60s and 70s. We'll have those two by four walls and maybe a bath fan, maybe a range hood for ventilation. A lot of those will have the King Auk, the passive vent just on the roof or high on the wall. HRVs are a lot more prevalent in more recently constructed homes up here. What we find is a lot of people will go into homes where they've been completely shut off or people have stuffed socks in the diffusers or wadded up t-shirts or something like that or just unplugged them because the flows weren't set right or they were too noisy or something. I mean, I've seen things like, I've seen this in quite a few instances actually. We'll go in and we'll find an HRV located right behind the uh, flue for the water heater or something like that. So the door won't open because the flue is in the way. And so nobody can clean their filters then. And of course, it's going to get gross. So what we'll do is often relocate things like that, relocate and replace those with more efficient, smaller ones, make sure the flows are set better. And then we put in fans on timers and to get to comply with the ventilation standard. So that's sort of what's typical about what we see in our work. And then as far as kind of the bleeding edge stuff, there's an organization in Fairbanks called the Cold Climate Housing Research Center, which does some really awesome research on kind of circumpolar design and what's appropriate. And they've worked with a regional housing authority and the two-year college up here to design some really interesting houses. They've got a house with an R60 urethane envelope in the village of Anaktuvik Pass, which is in the Brooks Range, about uh, it's a couple hundred miles southeast of here. And they designed the entire frame of the home out of aluminum that would nest together. So the beams and the studs would nest together. So it would make a compact bundle to ship in on a Cessna caravan. And then they set that thing up, foamed that. And I think it's even got a uh, one kilowatt solar array on that thing too. And that home there has used just over 200 gallons of diesel fuel oil for heating per year, whereas the typical home up here is 900 plus per year. So that's really proof that you can, with some good design and considers the elements and the resources available, you can build a pretty good home here for this climate. Do they have to ship in the chemicals to make the urethane on site or how does that work? 
I'm not sure exactly how that works. That's a really good question. I've never been involved in doing that thing here. We use tanks of two-part foam here in our work, but I'm not sure what that actual, that was back in 2009. I know they probably did it in summer, and that's probably a community that gets as cold as any up here, and they, they see temperatures of 60 below. I think they've had to touch up some of the foam since then. You know, it's kind of like rebounded from some of the surfaces, but I don't know what the actual, uh, the mixing and application looked like. You talked a little bit about the compaction of the aluminum frame to be shipped in on a Cessna because the only two modes you mentioned were either by barge or by plane to get materials there. What's the cost of freight relative to the cost of materials? Uh, It depends on the material, really. We use cellulose insulation here just because we can't really get away with using fiberglass due to the potential for wind washing. I mean, as I talk to you right now, we've probably got 30 mile an hour winds outside and potentially gusting up to 50 as this blizzard sweeps through our area tonight. My superintendent who's worked here seven years has just said it blows all over the place. And so the density of cellulose is a feature when we're applying it as insulation, but it's really a bug when we're shipping it up here, especially considering that it's mostly recycled paper. So we'll pay 11 or $12 for a 25-pound bale of that at the store down in Anchorage, and we'll pay um, between 40 and $60 per bale imported by cargo plane. That really gets expensive. We tried something new last winter where we had it trucked in on the ice road to uh, the community of Nooksit. They have a seasonal ice road that's there, so that cut down our freight costs by about half of what we would have paid. But generally, we're looking at adding at least another 50% onto building materials in general to ship them. Just to get them there. Just to get them there. You mentioned a photovoltaic array. I know a little bit about the light issue. Uh, when is daylight coming back? Because you're in darkness now, is that correct? Yeah, we're in polar night. We're in darkness until about January 22nd. That's got to be challenging to do the work in, I would imagine. Or is it just culturally everyone's accommodated that and you just pick yourself up and do whatever you need to do? How does the polar night affect work, if at all? The night doesn't affect it so much as just the cold and the weather at this time of year. So we're working on leveling the foundation of a house today, and we were scheduled to, and today is just a paperwork day. I mean, there's nothing getting done outside. Nobody's going to pull windows or put on a roofing or anything like that. That's really the big limiting factor. But other than that, I mean, we work outside year-round, inside year-round, where we can, and try to work around the weather. But the light I've managed to get used to the lack of light. I think the the summer is a little harder when we've got two months of the sun not going down because it's harder to sleep. But the other corollary of that, I guess, is we do get more productive in the summer. So we really try to schedule stuff that's got to be done outdoors during the summer. So you're going into your second year up there? I'm going into my third year up here. Second year with this program as a manager, yeah. You talked a little bit about indoor air quality and you sent over some notes or some thoughts here about the lingering misconceptions that you have to address. And do you have to address that with the work crews, with the management, with the residents? How does that all come together? And what are your teaching methods, your instructional methods on that topic of indoor air quality? To answer your first question, yeah, it's everybody, including myself at times, has misconceptions. And so I try to be upfront about what I do know as well as what I don't know. My answer to the second part of that is I really rely heavily on experts. So I don't have to be that authority and I don't have to be the end-all be-all on that. The healthy homes and indoor air quality stuff is really interesting to me, but I'm not an environmental health expert. And I have access to a lot of people who are. So 
I've worked pretty closely with folks like the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium, which has a Healthy Homes program. And they've done some really interesting work in communities with lowering the concentrations of indoor air pollutants and reducing school absences and things like that. And they've got a project coming up here soon in in Nooksit, the community that we're beginning to work in. So we're collaborating on that. I've made introductions between their program manager and our local health department to, to just try to get the message out there about indoor air quality. I really try to find those outside resources. Are there any public health metrics? Is there a heightened awareness of those issues such that you can draw those correlations? You did mention uh, something about the schools there, uh, better attentiveness. Is that correct? I can send you the link later on. That was the result of the study in Southwest Alaska, actually, so not up here quite yet. So this is still a pretty new concept. The healthy homes and indoor air quality stuff is just beginning to gain traction here. But ANTHC had done a, a study back in 2011 where they were air sampling in about 60 homes down in the Yukon, Kuskokwim River Delta area of Southwest Alaska. I believe they went to eight different villages and they had what they called frequent flyers, which are children that had to be flown from these remote villages into the medical center in Anchorage with these chronic respiratory diseases. And so they went in into these homes and did a combination, I believe, of education and some small ventilation fixes and found these reductions. And they are preparing, as I understand it, to publish those results soon. That's kind of what caught my attention and really happy that they're doing more work on the North Slope and that we get to collaborate with them. You and I both are members of the board for the Healthy Home Environments Association. What drew you to that? It sounds like you have a real keen interest in that, I'm sure. I have to say the company I get to keep as on that board is a big draw. I mean, there's you, Bill. You're the, the nicest guy I know <laughs> in the building science industry or anywhere. <laughs> there's Susan Davison and Joe Medosh and a bunch of really passionate, really devoted people on there kind of coming together around this topic in a very timely way. I think there's certainly up here, you know, and I can see the parallels of people paying attention to this in a way that hasn't happened before. And I also think that's related to certain technological improvements that have enabled us to really quantify the stuff and see the impact of our work in a whole new light. So I think really the people, the timing, the potential to do a lot of good, it's kind of like the stuff that got me into energy efficiency in the first place. You know, everybody loves to see the impact of their work. And this is one of those industries where you have frequent opportunities to do that. So that's what got me interested in healthy homes. A chance to help. Yes. I think we first met at the Habitat X conference. Do you want to give a little plug for that or just kind of tell me about your thoughts and feelings about Habitat X? Because I'm going to try to get Chris Dorsey in here someday soon. And absolutely you should. I'm sure he's a great interviewee and probably one of the most skilled interviewers and communicators out there. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. Yes. <laughs> I was working for a subcontractor in the Energy Upgrade California program in San Diego at the time, and I saw the Habitat X Fellowship come up in my feed and decided to give it a shot, recognizing Dorsey's name from the residential energy textbook. And there's a dog-eared copy of that in the shelf of every weatherization agency in this country. So it had a lure for me. And when I got there on that fellowship, I saw a side of the industry that I don't think I had completely realized was there before. I mean, this really, Habitat X distills the essence of the passion in this industry down to a really knowledgeable and forward-thinking group. And I probably should credit Habitat X with 
make me aware of the healthy homes concept and approach in the first place. And I think they were ahead of the curve. And I know a lot of people have been working on the issue for a long time. But I think the thing about Habitat X is people who get together there see where this industry, where the building performance and building science industry is going to be quite well advanced before it gets there. I really appreciate being among such a far-sighted and knowledgeable crowd. I agree. That's a great event and it's coming up. There's another convention coming together in the June of 2018, I believe, up in uh, Big Sky, Montana. I think about summer in Big Sky almost every day up here. It's just, it (laughs) it helps me get through the dark part. I really look forward to being there with you all on that deck in Big Sky under that big open sunny sky. Fantastic. I will put a link in to the show notes to the Healthy Home Environment Association, to Habitat X. If you send me that link to the schools, that study, that'd be great. Anything else you'd like to share with people if they want to get in touch with you, learn more about what you're doing or follow up on some things you've spoken about here? I'll send you the link. It was a story in the Anchorage Daily News about the work done in Southwest Alaska and and kind of what's happening with healthy homes here. I'd encourage people to come up here and visit if they'd want. I'd be happy to take them out on the tundra and give them a tour. I think it's really cool to kind of be back to my roots doing this weatherization stuff in such a challenging climate. And the lessons learned here may not always apply to other regions of the country or or the world. I'm happy to be doing this work and really happy to see the healthy home stuff take off. So I'm going to ask you one little hot seat question here. Like you answer either your favorite quote or something unique about yourself that most people wouldn't know. I'm going to go with a quote one, and I'm going to credit Chris Dorsey for making me think of this. I think it was F. Scott Fitzgerald who said, the mark of a first-rate intelligence, or something along those lines, is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time while retaining the ability to function. I thought that was pretty cool. Wow. I think oftentimes in the building science world, you know, we're presented with different information and we kind of have to sort through it all and understand that there's scientific realities and human realities that we have to balance to do our jobs effectively. And so that's a good guidepost for that. That's a very uh, compassionate scientist view there, Griffin. I'm very uh, happy to hear you say that. It's a very interesting quote. Love that quote. Well, we're going to wrap up here right now and just wanted to thank you for coming on again. I really hope the weather gets better, but I think it's uh, you're going to be in for a little bit more winter than we get down here. But I do look forward to seeing you at some upcoming conferences and definitely at Habitat X in June of 2018. And thanks for having me on, Bill. It's been a real pleasure to be here. I don't know about you, but that conversation about the 50-mile-an-hour winds really sent a chill down my spine. Well, we hope you enjoyed that episode and gained a little bit of information about what goes on in the world of building science above the Arctic Circle. If you want to keep up with other things that I find interesting, follow our page on Facebook by typing Building HVAC Science into the Facebook search bar. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor or you have an idea for a topic or want to communicate, please send me an email at bill underscore spohn, S-P-O-H-N, at bluecollarroots.com. That's B-L-U-C-O-L-L-A-R, roots, R-O-O-T-S, dot com. Some of the topics we discuss require technical training for proper interpretation or safe execution. So if you're a trained pro, then you can go right ahead. But if you're not, please consult with and hire a pro. If you're in the market for any of the tools or test instruments mentioned in our podcast, take a look at what True Tech Tools has to offer. 
That's T-R-U-T-E-C-H-T-O-O-L-S dot com. We have a special code associated with our show. The code is HVACBS, and you'll get a nice discount by using that code at True Tech Tools. Full disclosure, I'm one of the co-owners at True Tech Tools. We also offer products that are suitable for use by homeowners, alarms, radon monitors, carbon monoxide meters. That was one of Griffin's topics today that you might find interesting as a homeowner or an occupant of a building or house. As always, we want to thank you for listening and following us on the Building HVAC Science podcast. If you haven't subscribed, please consider doing so. This will really help out our ratings for the uh, iTunes and the Google stores. I'm going to end with one of my new favorite quotes. This is a quote that will help you look at things positively. You think misery loves company? Well, guess what? Success and happiness love company too. Well, that quote's from Brandon Webb, who's an ex-Navy SEAL and author of several books. Thank you again, and hopefully you have a positive day.